0: So, I'm not teaching. This is Crystal Johnson. She's a super good friend of mine. Crystal and her husband are in Matt and I's connection group um, and have been for two years now. So I have asked Crystal to teach tonight on James chapter 2. Why you ask? Because I didn't understand James 2. So I thought I would delegate that to someone who I thought might. I'm only kind of kidding. But um, no, there's There's lots of women that I think can teach and that can teach the Word of God. Um, The reason why I specifically felt like the Lord wanted me to ask Crystal this time is because there's been a couple times in Connection Group where she has, without trying, called me out on sin using the Word of God. And it's not what she was going for at that time, but my heart stopped on a dime and repented because of the way the Spirit moved through her. And I want other women to be blessed in that same way. And so that's why I asked her, and she's going to introduce herself, and you'll get to know her a little bit more as we dig into James chapter 2. So let's just start off by praying. God, thank you for the freedom to gather and to seek you as a corporate group. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is able to teach us, to train us, to correct us. So, Lord, I pray that we would be focused now, that we would be humble and moldable. Lord, that you would win in our hearts and in our minds, that we would be searching for truth. We thank you ahead of time for the ways that you want to liberate us, encourage us, uh, and help us to see you clearer. Amen. Okay, so like Rebecca said,
1: I'm Crystal. And I'm super thankful to be here with you today and to get to look at uh, James chapter two with you. I am a teacher, but this is my first time having an audience that isn't 10. And so um, with 10 year olds, they make amazing facial expressions at New Truth or jump in all the time. So feel free to do either of those two things and then I'll feel right at home. So in true teacher fashion, I'll start with the story. If you are a teacher, if you're married to one, if you're friends with one, you know that school stories are just something you can't avoid. But it's just how we process being with littles all day. So keep listening to your teacher's friends' stories. (laughs) So part of the job is being on full guard. And when I go get my line from recess, I have to be oh so ready for whatever needs there may be. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Goonies, but my favorite character, Data, he's known for having his jacket full of gadgets, and I feel like I need that, like a full tool belt at my disposal to meet all the needs, like Band-Aid, got it, ice pack, got it, Mm -hmm. hug, I can do that. But some of the issues aren't fixed as quickly. And as we start to navigate through the conflict, I hear these long, sometimes exaggerated stories of how they've been wronged in these last 10 (laughs) minutes since I've seen them. And um, they'll start with, I was just play-roasting and said, what are those to his shoes? But then he got serious and actually pushed me back. And then the other one jumps in and tells their part of the story until I finally cut it off and say, did either of you meet the expectations? No. Are you both responsible? Yes. Okay, so do you both need to make it right? Yes, but when they came to me, they already had this pre-decided idea of where the line would be drawn, right? Um, I was just joking, but they took it too far. They decide where the line was gonna be drawn. But in reality, my students needed to not compare their actions to each other and not compare their actions to what they thought was okay. But when their actions were um, brought up to our classroom expectations, they found themselves both on the same side. At fault and not measuring up. And today we're going to look at what James wrote to us to help us see that we try to draw the line between ourselves and others. And obviously, our struggles are a little different than my fourth graders because they're a little more new at this whole spiritual maturity idea. But you guys, we're still drawing lines when we choose to use our ideas, our culture's ideas. instead of God's holiness. So we'll see that that's what favoritism is when we use our opinions to draw the line rather than God's holiness and how partiality and favoritism have no place in faith. Okay, so we have two parts to look at today, favoritism and good works. And the main idea that's going to connect those two together is that mature faith in Jesus has natural effects rather than an optional reaction. So verse one reads, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Well, first of all, James uses uses the word brothers. And from the envelope at the beginning, we know that he's speaking to Jews. And by calling them brothers, we know that he's speaking to Jewish Christians, right? So as brothers and as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't do it. Don't be partial. Don't show favoritism. But before we can hear from James about what the problem is, I needed to understand more of why this is a problem. And we'll see that once we look at the character of God. So first we'll see that God is not partial. He is merciful. So we're going to pause from James and take a quick time out to help because when he is speaking to them, he's speaking as though they already have this understanding. And I want my heart and our hearts to have that right understanding of God so that we can receive well what James is saying to us. So let's look at what the word shows us about God's character and whether he is partial or not, okay? Some things in the Bible seem like they take a lot of investigating and piecing together, but this was something, as we looked in the study this week, it was one of those answers I love as a teacher. It was a yes or a no, and this was a straightforward no, right? Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And then put really simply, Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. I love that. I love that it's not up to interpretation whether God is partial or not, but he used his word so clearly to tell us that he is not a God of partiality. And when James begins, he has that understanding and he gets that truth that God is impartial. So he starts right away speaking to the people about reflecting that. But if I'm being honest with you, it took me a lot longer to come to that same conclusion, which might not make sense because those verses are really clear about who God is. So I saw straight from God's word that it said as truth that God was not partial. But I kept thinking of words like in verse 5 where it says, has not God, chosen, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And then a flood of familiar verses came to my mind that used words such as chosen and favor. And if you were in the ESV this week, it said partiality, partiality, partiality. But if you were in the NIV, it was favoritism. So favor was a big red flag. So, so far, I know that God is impartial. He tells me so. That means he does not show favoritism, but he does show favor, So then I was like, okay, well, I think he shows favor, right? Like, am I just making this up? Let me go see. So Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Exodus 33, 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 130, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. And then the example we're really going to look at is in Romans. Paul looks back on Jacob and Esau as he discusses God's character about being partial or not. But it's awesome because right before his example of favor, he speaks to God showing no favoritism. So Romans 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring." So he's not even partial to the Israelite people, right? Romans 9 talks about how don't be thinking you've received mercy just because you're a family member. It has nothing to do with natural children. It has everything to do with the children of the promise. So not all Israelites were automatically God's children. It's those who shared Abraham's faith. Again, confirming that God is impartial, right? So I get that. That's what we've saw before. We're good. But then right after that, Paul goes into speaking of God's favor. So verse 11, this is where he uses the Jacob and Esau example. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, so there's no way for them to earn any favoritism, right? Before they're born, before anything good or bad happened. In order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, But by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this brings us to point number one today. There's not favoritism, but there is favor with God. God does not show favoritism, but he does show favor. So then what's the difference between his favor and my sinful favoritism? Well, let's keep going in Romans 9. Here's what it says. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? That's one of those moments where I'm like, good, I'm glad I'm not the only one that is thinking what's going on here. But no, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy, for the scripture says the Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he harden whom he wants to harden. So favoritism is when I'm giving some preferential treatment to somebody because there's something about you that seems like you are at least a little bit worthy of my love, my attention, my affection, right? But that's different than God's favor because it's not based on man at all. Favor has everything to do with mercy. So as I was literally just laying in my bed studying this, and then all of a sudden I just bawled because I realized I was making this list of Old Testament examples, and I might as well just added my name to the list. When I was wondering if God showed favor, I realized, of course he does. I'm one of them, right? I have mercy because God chose to give mercy, right? I can't say that I have grace because I chose to love God, because it's, it's that he softened my heart in the first place to even help me realize my need for a Savior, right? So I am an example of someone that has received favor. We are an example of people receiving favor. Second uh, Corinthians says, When Christ died on Calvary, the perfect sacrifice was presented, making it possible for all who believe to enjoy God's favor. So God is a God of mercy and not partiality. And now that we understand how it's not in God's character, now we can hear from James and know that if it's not part of God's character, then it surely should not be found, found in us either. So I hope that that helps us to not see partiality through a worldly lens, but through a lens of who God is and how he has treated us. So this brings us to the second point. First, we looked at not favoritism but favor from God, and now we'll move on to not favoritism, but mercy, and we'll first see James unpack that favoritism and partiality is a problem. It gets really good, so I hope you're ready for this. In verse 1, it says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. When he says, my brothers, that how, that's how he sums up everything we just talked about. In those two words, he says, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, you see, you look at life through his lens and no longer your own, right? So he's like, we're all on the same page. Let's go. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ. We were just reminded that our faith is not because of our worth or because of any partiality from God, our faith is based on mercy. So then as we hold on to that faith, the only thing that should be flowing through us is mercy, right? It's one or the other. The hand can't be holding both, favoritism and faith. If we start to show partiality, it's because we just took our hand off of our faith, and then um, our sinful hand and evil thoughts became partiality. We have to know that partiality never comes from him says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I just hear James pleading with us, like, have a right view of who your God is, right? The Lord of glory. So whatever we wanted from those people that we were giving preference to, whether it was attention or money or honor, James says, remember, your God is the Lord of glory, right? And in our true king, we're lacking nothing. So I think partiality comes from a lack of faith. If we were just to remember who our faith is in, we wouldn't feel like we needed to look for some sort of advantage from other people. And we do that when we align ourselves with a selective group of people in order to hold on to them rather than hold on to our faith. And he shows us this more with an example, verse 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... Assembly here is talking about the Jewish synagogue, and so they were meeting at the synagogue for one of two reasons. It could have been for a worship service, so you can picture church, or it could have been um, a meeting to make a judicial decision, but either way, partiality was not appropriate. So a fine man comes in, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, And before we really hear James dig it into us, we have to imagine how desperate these people were, right? We talked about how they're not at home. They're surely not in a powerful or in a rich position. So now we have someone wealthy walking into the room. And of course, that person is going to be interesting to them, right? That's who we congregate to is the people that we feel like can help us okay but our circumstances shouldn't determine who we align ourselves with if we remember that we have a faith in the Lord of glory then our circumstances shouldn't make us more apt to show favoritism to a person But what I see in them and what I see in myself is what causes this partiality. Them wanting to be helped back, right? I can relate to that. Or maybe it was because they saw something in that person, that rich person, that they used to be or they aspire to be. And so we congregate with people that are either like us or people that we want to be like. And maybe they did it because it was normal, right? Favoritism is super normal. It's what culture and what society does. So sometimes we're unaware of what the Lord says about it. But here's the lens we need to see it through. Verse four says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If I would have to choose one verse that stuck to me the most, this is the one. There's so many words that I think James chose so carefully. It says, have you not then made distinction? So it's not God and it's not his word. It's us making the distinction. Sometimes I feel like it's me applying God's word or me like thinking wisely about something. It's me making a distinction. It is what it is. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges? Do you, did you notice that he used the word become? It means it wasn't our original position, right? We welcomed ourselves into that spot. We became a judge. We allowed ourselves into that position. So I literally picture God on his throne, right? That is his rightful place. And me and my not thinking smartly, just puts a ladder up to his throne, climbs up, carries a chair with me, puts a chair right next to his throne. He's the king of kings, judging as he should, but now the king has a queen, and I just sat right next to him, and together we're sorting through the people and making distinctions. And it sounds really silly to say until I realize that's actually the reality of my life, right? And so we become a judge with evil thoughts, but the difference is is that my thoughts are evil. But when I'm sitting next to God in that judgment seat with him, it doesn't feel evil. It feels normal. It feels right, right? But they are evil, and the thoughts are not ours to have. One commentator said it this way, Trace your partiality till you come to those hidden thoughts which accompany and support it, and you will find those to be exceedingly evil. So first we looked at God's character, that God is not partial but merciful. No favoritism, only favor. And now James in verse 1 through 7 has showed us that as a believer, partiality is a problem. But we don't just want to remove the problem. We want to replace it with something else. So as he continues with verse 8, we'll see that mercy is the replacement behavior. Verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I hope that you notice this that according to Scripture, right? We're not to conduct our life according to culture or to comfort, but according to Scripture. It keeps us grounded. So the Scripture that we are aligning ourselves to is the royal law. And um, this is referring back to Matthew chapter 22 where a man said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is our rightful place. And nowhere in there do I hear a job description asking for him to have help up on the judgment seat, right? That's a lot, that's completely opposite of favoritism. But if you show partiality, I'm continuing on in that chapter, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." So when we understand that we are a transgressor that is worthy to be condemned of the law, but because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not judged under Moses' law, but under the law of liberty, the gospel, that should bring us to a place of humility where partiality is no longer even considered, right? It's not even an option when we are in our rightful place. But I think back to my fourth graders who were so quick to draw the line of this was okay, this wasn't. And like them, I need to remember that the only line that should be drawn is between God and his holiness and us. And when I remember that, I hop down from that judgment seat and my rightful place is on my knees at his feet, right? Right next to everybody else, okay? And when I am in my rightful spot, boy, am I glad that it is not judgment without mercy. The chapter goes on to say, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as I was studying this, Psalm 139 was my prayer for me and for you. Right? It says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I need God to test me and to know me and expose the areas of my life that show partiality that I'm so used to that I don't even notice anymore, or that is so culturally normal that I don't even hate it. Or I've so justified in my mind that I never even thought of the thought as evil right? So I sat in the chapter for an entire month, which was not a comfortable place to be sitting, right? I realized I've never actually looked at scripture for that small of a chunk for that long before. So I was asking God to do this and he did. And I tried to talk myself out of having to share an example of what he exposed to me, but I realized I will so that you can see how James was speaking to that then and God is still speaking to that now. So my husband and I are taking classes to get our foster care license, and part of the process is a ton of paperwork, and part of the paperwork is that we get to decide some of the boundary lines of what kids we will or will not take into the home, and the paper, there's nothing wrong with the paper. It's a good idea, right? You can say what ages would work well for you, and if you already have a family, what would work well with your kids, and then it goes, there's literally a list, we filled it out last night, of every sort of behavior you could imagine. So it says, will you take a child with ADHD? And then you rate it on a scale of one to five, never. And then on its way up to yes, we'd be very comfortable with that. So some of that is good, right? The point of it is, if you are a nurse that works with babies that are are born addicted to drugs all the time, that's that's an item line, and you could say, I'd be very comfortable with that, and then they know that you'd be a good first call to make. So I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the paper, but it showed me that there's something wrong with my heart. So as we're filling this out, um, a kid that has been traumatized and has explosive behaviors, we see that every day, easy to circle a five. Uh, Will you take a child with ADHD? We were totally open to that. Would you take a child with intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities? As long as it worked in our split-level home, we're open to that, bring them in. But then I got to the line that said, will you love a child that is LGBT? And I was stopped dead in my tracks. And I I could've, my go-to is to justify, right? Like, oh, I think I could think of a really good reason where it would be okay to put a one or a two, but I realized that that was me drawing a line completely based off of my comfort. This paper was to help the child find the best home, but there was no way that I could justify calling it that. It was not me looking for the best interest of the child. It was purely my comfort, right? And for so many weeks of the class, I I knew that that was going to be asked, and I didn't see it as evil until I sat in this chapter. And then the Lord asked me that again. Will you open your home and your bed and your table to that kid? And I realized that I had actually sorted in my mind a kid that would fit well into our family and then a kid that I would maybe rather not. And I realized how ungodly unholy that was right we saw that partiality has no place in faith and I wanted to have no place in my life so last night when we filled it out I was like okay so we put it we put the five right as totally welcome and my husband was like you know that that means they'll call I'm like I know it partiality has no place in my life so now when I wonder what to do I have to remember what I've been given which is mercy right and so a visual that helped me with this was a pipe and if you're wondering how i got to the idea of using a pipe my dad's the family business that we have is roger's plumbing and heating and so pipe is what was in the brain okay so um original the original source of life is god okay so our first pipe is him and we just talked about how flowing out of god is mercy so the water coming through we'll say is the mercy right so as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm putting my adapter on and I'm putting my pipe to his. Because of my faith, I'm connecting to the source. Okay? But here, here was the issue. The water pressure that's coming through God's pipe, the mercy coming from him, is a lot different than what's coming out the other side once it gets to me. I was thinking about, you know, when you go to a a motel or a hotel and the shower has super good water pressure, you notice, right? And if it's trickling and not super good, you notice. It's a deal breaker, right? And so with God, there's no valve of like a little bit less today, a little bit not. It's on or off, and it's fully on. Like a firefighter that opens that hose, it is full pressure as much as it can. Mercy. But then for me, it's like I've added this shower top to it where I can choose, like, that person, full pressure. The next person, they get a little bit less. And then for some, I completely turn off the water. But what I realized is that Um, it should not look so different of what's coming in and what's going out, okay? And when I realize how full force that water is coming through God, how much mercy is pouring through him, it's not an option to stop it. I picture like holding your hand up to an end of a hose. You can't stop it, right? The water just pushes it back. So a plug of partiality is not even an option. When we have a right understanding of who God is, and what we've received for him from him and so I ask you who do you do this to who in your life do you determine how much mercy they get picture turning it on a little bit turning it off a little bit who have you justified in your mind as just worthy of receiving less guys favoritism is a problem and it's not just don't do it James is saying choose mercy Okay, So now we'll switch gears to the last part of the text, which seems like a different idea, but it's related. Remember that the main point is um, mature faith in Jesus has natural effects, not optional reactions. And we saw this as we looked at how God extended mercy instead of judgment, so we should do the same. right? It's a natural effect. So now James will end by showing us what the natural effect of true faith is. So our final point will, will will be is us looking at not dead faith, but genuine faith. Paul says or James says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? So we talked about this in the homework, and you talked about this in your small groups. At first look, this can seem like he's not saying the gospel correctly, right? It seems like he's missed it somehow. And it seems like he's he's being controversial to what Paul has said. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of faith. Works so that no one may boast. It kind of seems like Paul is team faith and James is team works. However, we'll see that James and Paul are not contradicting each other, but they're in fact speaking about one gospel, a gospel that indeed tells us we're saved by faith alone. So then what do we make of what James is saying? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Well, we have to look closely at what Paul and James are referring to as works. Paul was talking about a different kind of work, one that came before faith, one that was obedience to the law of Moses and not to the gospel, where James is talking about a work that comes after faith as a necessary effect of sound faith. So we have to slow down enough to see that no one is saying you are saved by works. Okay, It's not works and then faith, it's faith and then works. Okay? And Paul doesn't disagree with that. Sometimes we just like take a verse and take it out of context. So I thought this was so funny to see. But if we keep reading from verse 8 and 9 of what I just read from Paul, right after that he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul does understand the gospel the same way that James does, right? It's faith. And then he says, you're created for works. Good works, okay? When James says, Can that faith save him? There's another point that James is not adding anything to the gospel. He didn't say, Can faith really save you? Is that really gonna be enough? He said, Can that faith save you? Meaning that faith without works, that thing that you're calling faith, is it actually faith? So, what really helped me understand that is that it's not an addition to. James is just saying, Take a second to see if what you are calling faith is truly a saving faith. He's not adding to the gospel. He's asking us to reflect on our lives because it's impossible to be connected to the source of life and not have that bring life. So then James uses two examples to show what he means by genuine faith resulting in these good works, right? And remember his audience. They would have been super familiar with both of these examples. So he starts with Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So you study this in Genesis this week, right? The story of Abraham walking with his son Isaac up the mountain, okay? It got to the point where as they're walking up the mountain, his his son Isaac realizes, "Uh, Dad, where's the sacrifice, right? To which Abraham replies, the Lord will provide. So they keep going. It got to the point where Abraham built the altar, It got to the point where Abraham had Isaac laying on the altar and he was bound to the wood. It got to the point where Abraham was ready to make the sacrifice when God told him to stop. You guys, Abraham was not saved on that day by that action, right? But that action showed the legitimacy of his faith. So when in the first part of the chapter, when we were talking about boasting and being a seed of Abraham, that does us no good unless our faith is alive like his was, right? And in the same way, James says, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Abraham was known for his great faith, right? But this strong faith-filled man was justified by a working faith. Just like this sinful look down on woman, look down upon woman was justified by her working faith. Okay, one thing I do want to point out is the word justified. This was something I highlighted, and I kept reading it. And as I was studying, like other answers were being, other questions were being answered, but I just kept reading. Like I'm still stuck because Paul said in Romans, Abraham was justified by faith, and then James literally said, "Was not Abraham our father justified by?" faith? works. So this is another one of those things. I'm like, okay, we're not team works and team faith. We're one gospel, but I don't see how this is working until I just went to dictionary.com and wanted to know what is justification? What does it mean? And it was crazy. There's actually two definitions. Okay. The worldly worldly dictionary recognizes that there's two. Um, One was being declared or made righteous before God. And then one was marked by a legitimate reason. So when Paul is saying that they were justified by faith, he's saying their salvation before God, they are justified by faith. But when James is saying they're justified by works, that's what it means it was marked by a legitimate reason. That means the rest of the world that's watching Abraham walk up that mountain with Isaac, they're like, what is he doing, right? When Rahab took the chance that she could have lost her life for putting these messengers and taking, um, having them be safe with her, it was marked by a legitimate reason, and that legitimate reason was their faith, okay? So I love that distinction between two ways that they were using justification. One is before God, and one is for other people to see. This is where it's also helpful to know the difference between two terms, imputed and experiential righteousness. Imputed righteousness is what Paul is talking about. It's what's given to us by Jesus. It's the only source of our salvation. No one is adding anything to that. It is imputed to us because of Jesus. But then, what James is talking about is this experiential righteousness. In his justified people, God is producing righteousness in them as evidence that they were truly justified. So there's the initial imputed righteousness, and then there's this experiential righteousness, which we saw in Abraham and Rahab's life. So, yeah. Experience righteousness, yep. So once justification has happened, God, through those people, is producing righteousness in them as evidence of what he has done, okay? Another verse that came to mind when you asked me that was... it also says that that work completed their faith. And I wondered, well, why does that complete their faith? Because it didn't complete their salvation. But the point of it, those, the works that happen because of our faith isn't for, to prove our salvation. It's not proving anything to God, but for the watching world, it is, right? When Paul said, you are created for good works, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us bringing glory to his name, okay? Okay. Does that answer your question? Okay. So the application isn't to go do more. James isn't saying step up the good works. He's saying get connected to the source, right? Because genuine faith in God and good works always go together. Works don't save, but they naturally flow from a legitimate relationship with Christ. So when we had the right view of God and the right view of self, we saw that favoritism had no place. And mercy is what is flowing from the source. And when our faith is genuine and true, we saw that we don't choose works or not. Works is the natural effect and evidence of true saving faith. Mature faith in Jesus has these natural effects. It's not an optional reaction. Will you pray with me? Father, would you help us to see ourselves as mercy receivers? And when we do, God, would partiality have no place in our lives? Father, would we have a genuine faith that is alive? And because we are saved, would our faith result in good works for the glory of your name? Amen.